You're listening to Case Confirmed, a public health podcast series. Each month, we interview a different expert in the field of public health. Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, shout out to my alma mater, and former president of the Society for Menstrual Cycle Research. She's the author of The Paradox of Natural Mothering, New Blood, Third Wave Feminism and the Politics of Menstruation, as well as the forthcoming book, The Managed Body, Developing Girls and Menstrual Health in the Global South. Her research lies at the intersection of social movements, gender, health, and embodiment. She's also one of the best professors I had while at UMass Boston, so I was really excited to reconnect with her for this episode. It's so great to see you today, Chris. Um, I think the last time we saw each other was three years ago when I was graduating UMass. Thank you so much, Chris, for being here today. Oh, it's an honor to be involved. I'm so gratified to hear that that class was meaningful to you. Your expertise is something that I've been really interested in um, because of you. So I'm interested in the menstruating body and particularly the social construction of the menstruating body as a site of pollution and containment. It's... uh, I suppose, a legacy of my long-standing interest in social movements and uh, feminist theory, and particularly uh, how, and and body studies. So what I mean by that is um, examination of how bodies get understood in culture, um, how their meanings meanings are rendered through social interaction and institutions, and how often those meanings are really oppressive to people that inhabit those bodies, right? So we construct certain bodies as desirable and certain bodies as undesirable. So imagine the fat body, the body of color, the disabled body, the queer body, the trans body, and so on. On Another kind of body that's rendered um, undesirable is the menstruating body. And unfortunately, in among body studies scholars, it's often a type of body that's neglected. So we often don't think critically about the menstrual body. We take for granted that menstruation is something that must be rendered private and personal. So I grew interested in menstruation several years ago, and I haven't stopped. I actually thought after my first book on the topic that, you know, I'd move on to the next project, you know, move on to something else, but it keeps drawing me in. And I find in the last few years that, um, as some people have put it, you know, pop culture is having, it got its period. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So menstruation is having its moment. It's uh, popping up in lots of mainstream media sources, it's all over social media, more and more people are picking it up as a subject of inquiry, of scholarly inquiry, and as a site for social change. Would you say in the beginning, did people kind of look at you funny when, you know, you're so passionate about this, like, how did, how were you received at first? Yeah, so at first it was lonely. So it's exciting, but it's also scary because am I getting it right? Can I talk to you about this? What literatures do I draw on? And people often responded with, why are you studying that, Chris? Like, there are bigger issues like sex trafficking. You know, <laughs> how about that? Uh, you know, or genital cutting or if you're interested in the body. And I had to formulate a response that helped people see the connections between menstruation and other if you will, more pressing or more arresting issues. I do think there, there are linkages, but they're not evident. And I think that's actually the work of the menstrual taboo is that it 
buries the issue so deep that we don't even think about its interconnections. It's like the root structure is so far down below the tree. And, you know, to circle back to your question, when I started doing this work before, we didn't have language. We didn't have, we didn't call it critical menstruation studies. We just called it, you know, something I'm interested in. Right, right. It's been cool to watch it evolve. But yes, it was alienating at first and I was filled with doubt and I feel much more rooted now. Well, me and lots and lots of other people. Right, right. (laughs) um, Yeah, but it definitely has caught on lots of spaces. Entrepreneurs are interested in menstruation. For better or worse. (laughs) For better or for worse. I am concerned about the entrepreneurial fixation Mm -hmm. on menstruation because I'm worried that if we turn this really complicated social interactional reality, right, which is, again, my focus is on the meaning of menstruation, Mm -hmm. and we we turn it into an opportunity to develop products and sell products, you know, higher tech products Mm -hmm. like sexy underwear that absorbs your flow and smart tampons, that's a real thing, you know. um, What is a smart tampon? (laughs) Actually, um, through the wonders of technology, we'll let you know when your tampon is full and needs to be changed. Oh, because, okay. Interesting. Well, right. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, that's a thing in development. I don't think it's on the market yet. Sure. I think it's, it's huh. in testing still. What, like you'll get like a text, like time to change your tampon? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, interesting. Right. So <laughs> so let's focus on that. Um, I think that's interesting and I like uh, yeah. people having options of different ways of caring for their body. That might work for somebody that uh, for maybe has, because of a disability, doesn't have good body awareness and maybe their pelvic region, you know, so I can see an application for it, but, but I worry that these kinds of technologies actually sort of leapfrog over a real deep embodied awareness, sort of like I, for me to learn when my body signals to be that my tampon is full is important. And and it's, it's, uh, it's training myself to be aware of my body, to be aware of my of all the things, if I'm running a temperature, if I have cramps, or to know the difference between the flu, a flu reaction and an allergy reaction, right? So having embodied awareness of what we call body literacy, I think is fundamental to being a, a, an informed consumer. Like, I need that product. I don't need that product. Um, so if we jump over that kind of embodied awareness and we outsource it, if you will, to a product, I worry that it can have long-term negative consequences, right? Let's say you're, you're 16 or you're 14, 13, first period, and you rely on the app to tell you when your period is coming, then you don't learn to read your own body signals, right? Um, and then you lose your phone or you run out of charge or the app, you know, goes offline or, you know what I mean? If you're reliant on, I feel that way just with like maps on my phone. Like sometimes I just want to print map just in case, you know, Google maps. <laughs> yeah. Right. I just, just in case I want to have the backup and it's important that I know how to get from here to there is basic as, I mean, kind of older ancient humans knowing things like what plants are edible or how that's, to use. That's a great connection. How to navigate. That's and right. Those are all lost skills at this yeah. point. Yeah. So it feels to me like a lost language, right? The yeah. lost language of body literacy, of knowing knowing one's body and how to read it. Um, and, and, and again, to use the word outsource again, to outsourcing it to technology. So I guess I'd like to see that people have the body literacy and they, and they sort of supplement that with the app. But not for but not for the app to replace the body literacy, um, and that probably makes me sound like an old so anti-technology curmudgeon. <laughs> um, but I I think because of body shame, 
um, that's what motivates a lot of these interventions is that people don't want to deal with their body. Hmm, um, they, it's, it's, it's intimidating, it's confusing and it's yucky. I mean, people don't touch themselves. They don't know the difference between different kinds. Of, they don't know the difference in mucus, right? They may not know the difference between a menstrual cramp and a backache. Um, so it's not uncommon that we are looking for ways to avoid, or not surprised that we're looking for ways to avoid those kinds of engagements. But I don't think that's a way forward if we're really going to develop a body positive culture. Uh, particularly for female-bodied people, you know, who are socialized to think their bodies are inadequate as they are and that they are perpetually projects in need of development, often through consumer engagement, so mm-hmm. better living through consumption. Right. And I worry that the app is another way to sort of live a better life through consumption mm-hmm. without, you know, valuing and celebrating the, the organic, the authentic body itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that makes me think of also <clears throat> kind of like how we've turned menstruation I'm all for hormonal birth control. I'm so happy that it exists and everything. Yeah. But it's like more sure. and more people are opting to just completely never have a cycle. This this, uh, this premium of efficiency, like you must be mm. ready to work at all times and your body can never get in the way, which is a male standard, yep. right? By the way, men have hormonal fluctuations too and they have bodies and their bodies excrete things and emit things too. But we tend to think of of men's embodiment as the standard, right? And, and, and so when we pin women's embodiment to that, then it means that they have to deny many of the realities of their body, including menstruation, right? And the capacity to get pregnant. And so the sort of flatlining of the hormonal reality, which is what um, long-acting contraceptive does and oral contraceptive does, this flatlining really is, I think, devastating if it's a lifestyle choice. That sounds very judgy. People should be able to make the lifestyle choices they want, but I think most people are making them in the dark. They're making them without adequate information about what the potential impacts are for that sort of that flatlining of the hormonal variations in the typical menstrual cycle. And so if you're going to make that choice, make it with the lights on, make it knowing what the impacts are. And, you know, we don't really know long, 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 long term what it means to eliminate your cycle altogether for you know, years at a time, mm-hmm. you know, traditional oral contraceptives don't eliminate the cycle entirely. There is that week of a break where there is a chance for the body to sort of be itself. But with these, um, for instance, like Seasonique and Seasonal, mm-hmm. Librel, these cycle stopping contraceptives, and of course, injectables, um, there's mm-hmm. absolutely, it's, it's, it's gone. And in most IUDs. And IUDs, right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you want to restore fertility, what, what are the impacts there? And, and, and what does it mean that, you know, 14-year-old girls are going on these forms of birth control, never getting to know what their menstrual cycle is like? So then when it comes back, they're like, yuck, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like shocking, you know, it's un- the unpredictability and the blood and the mess. And again, I, I think that's, that's an unfortunate to sort of pathologize, to use your word, to pathologize a, a natural body experience. And we also weaponize it. So we do more than pathologize it. We actually weaponize We use it against one another. Um, either as humor, right, to diminish, or as to, to shame and to humiliate. And that's really messed up. Definitely. So now I kind of want to take it more more closely to, like, public health, and especially mm-hmm. the NGOization of, of menstruation and everything. And because I know even for myself, like, I sometimes look at, like, public health fellowships for after and MPH, and some of them are, um, you know, do take place. These organizations, it's like, 
come and work and and bring these little like brown and black girls pads and everything and it I don't know kind of makes me you know after taking class with you it's it's I just I see it much more differently now Mm -hmm. um so yeah if you could kind of go a little into that and and yeah sure so as I said I thought after a major project on menstrual activism which was focused on um North America, the U.S., and to a smaller degree, Canada, I thought I was done. And around the time I was wrapping that project, I discovered that there were there was an increasing number of organizations that were being established to serve women and girls in the global south, primarily through the provision of menstrual products donated, made in the global north, and sent to um, communities in the global south, um, a whole variety um, single-use products, uh, reusable cloth products, menstrual cups, and to a lesser degree, menstrual health education initiatives and some work at the policy level, you know, trying to um, agitate for, for instance, um, an education to include menstrual health education in school curricula, removing tax from menstrual products, and so on. So I was like, oh, I guess I'm not done, because there's a whole different kind of movement in the global south that looks very different than the movement in the global now, north. And in particular, I mean, the differences were really striking to me, So, and some of them were quite ironic. Um, while activists in the global north were working on um, promoting alternative products so that people aren't as reliant on single-use polluting, I don't say disposable because you don't really dispose of them, you just move waste from one location to another. So single-use products like tampons and pads Um, promoting greener alternatives like cloth and sponges and um, menstrual cups. There was this huge promotion of single-use products in the global south, right? So don't use them in Boston, but go ahead and use them in, you know, Nairobi. (laughs) And that to me felt kind of odd. Um, Why is it, why are we promoting these products that we're we're classifying as polluting in the global north and also critiquing the um, health, potential health risks, because they're bleached and they're made of synthetic fibers and so on, right? And implicated with t- in, in toxic shock syndrome. So that was an interesting contrast. Also, a lot of the initiatives are promoting um, um, building um, and modifying and improving toilets in schools in particular, so that uh, menstruators, particularly girls, um, have privacy to care for their menstruating bodies. At the same time, in the Global North, we're promoting unisex and gender-neutral toileting, right? So that we're trying to not make gen- toilets so gender-segregated so that we make room for all kinds of bodies, right? And so I, I grew really um, curious about sort of the substance of these campaigns. Some of them were social businesses. Some of them were NGOs. Some of them were international NGOs. Um, some of them were simply Facebook or Twitter or uh, Instagram campaigns that didn't actually have a product or a material focus that were an aware, you know, awareness-based. We um, spent a little bit of time in Kenya and Uganda and India, um, shadowing organizations and interviewing um, the people that are running the organizations. And I interviewed 70-plus um, staffers associated with organizations. And I also... Um, did textual analysis of um, 45, 45 different um, MHM, Menstrual Hygiene Management, which is the acronym that's used to capture these kinds of organizations, 45 of the organizations. So I looked at their social media feeds and their websites, and a lot of them have videos, um, promotional videos that they hope will go viral, right? So I looked at all that material to try to understand the substance of the campaigns and particularly how they frame the work they do, how they rationalize 
this issue now and this intervention now. So framing the problem and framing the solution. And many of them use a public health frame, more use a human rights frame, that it's a matter of human rights that girls, they, they never really talked about menstruators or you know, non-girl um, non or woman-identified menstruators, which is another interesting difference, right? Um, <clears throat> but how, how that if when girls and women are denied access to the menstrual care products they need and toilets and water and so on, then that undermines their human rights to education and to safety um, and so on. And I grew very critical of that frame. <laughs> they frame the issue as a human rights issue and they tie it to dignity. They say that when girls and women are denied access to products or toilets or water, it undermines their dignity, right? So menstrual hygiene management is a matter of dignity. And so we use the human rights frame to say we have to preserve girls' dignity. We have to give girls dignity through these interventions. And I say that reinscribes, it's subtle, but it reinscribes the idea that menstruation is itself abject, right? That the menstruating body is abject, that, that it's undignified if someone knows you're menstruating. If you stain your skirt or someone opens up the toilet and sees that you're changing your pad, your dignity is compromised. That, I agree that that's true, but I feel like that's an artifact of menstrual shame and that a more productive way forward would be to attack the notion that the menstruating body is undignified, right? That menstruation itself is a foil to one's sort of respectability. And so I, I push back against the dignity frame, not against human rights, but specifically about the, uh, the dignity frame, because I think we're, when we're saying here, take these pads, girl in Nairobi, so that you can better hide the fact of your menstruation, we're not attacking menstrual stigma. We're accommodating it. Right. right? And even the direction, the flow from global north to global That's south right. in a lot of the cases, That's it's right. also kind of this like attitude of here we know what's best for you. Right. Menstruate like we do. Right. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> you can't possibly right. have your own solution. Right. To... And, and you can't be dignified. You can't be an effective student or a worker if your if this if your uh, menstruation is known to others, which of course is naive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of reasons that the menstruating body is considered abject, right? And the key is gender. And so what we're doing is we're papering over the underlying issues. Um, and and creating a consumerist solution to a social problem, right? Mm -hmm. Which is classic neoliberalism, right? Mm -hmm. Individualize it. It's the site of the individual menstrual body. The problem is that she is at risk of disclosing her menstrual status. Fix it with a consumer solution, and structures and ideologies remain untroubled. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, of course, that's not a very um, that's a very frustrating analysis for someone who's working every day on the ground. Because NGOs have to work at the level of the practical, right? And I understand that. But I, and that's my job. <laughs> that's my job as an academic is to try to see the structures and the patterns that maybe people that are on the ground every day kind of lose sight of. So they're busy writing grants to get funding for, you know, free products. And they're, and they're through no fault of their own, losing sight of the bigger issue, which is menstrual stigma. Menstrual stigma is the culprit here. That is the thing we have to take down. And until we do, no high-tech product, smart tampon, app, you know, 
sparkling clean toilet with a you know uh, impenetrable lock none of those things are going to solve the problem um, because eventually somebody's menstrual status is going to be disclosed and if that's met with shame and silence and secrecy and humiliation we have not fixed the problem more and more is coming forward more and more as i said earlier scholars are taking up this issue and really designing good, solid studies. Of course, the gold standard of the RCT, but um, up, up till now, the data has been pretty flimsy, actually. Uh, some of the mostly wided, widely cited studies um, are quite poor, or they're regional, and then they get extrapolated to areas that couldn't possibly, like a study done in Ethiopia, why would that make sense in southern India, right? So uh, activists who are themselves not researchers often and may not even have access to, you know, scholarly research databases are, you know, re uh, repeating what they've heard elsewhere and not going back to check the study to see, you know, its strength, its rigor, its applicability. Um, and so, in fact, I spent a lot of time in this, this book manuscript I just finished um, identifying the studies that are cited by the organizations when they frame the problem. Like, this is a crisis. You know, girls are dying. <laughs> girls are dropping out of school, you know, um, to, see, to, see the, to see the data. And it's really not there yet. Um, and also the link between giving girls menstrual products and keeping them in school, that relationship is not yet causally established. So people are building programs on a very shaky foundation. And I think they're building it on assumption, which is, oh, my God, and often a Western assumption. About 42% of the organizations that I identified, over 130 working in the global south, um, are, are founded by Westerners. Um, so that's a lot of Western assumption that's shaping menstrual hygiene management. And the assumption is, oh, my God, they're bleeding on rags. That has to be a problem, right? That must be a problem in their lives because I don't bleed on rags and I don't want to bleed on rags. That's what my grandma bled on, but I'm grateful to have tampons and single-use products, right? Single-use pads. And so the assumption is, is that has to be a problem. And, um, and capitalism has helped construct it as a problem because, for instance, in India, that's a, you know, a emerging market for the menstrual care industry. And so, you know, marketers are salivating at the potential to cultivate Indians as single-use product consumers. And so there's billboards everywhere, right? And in fact, in schools where menstrual health education is provided by corporations who then the punchline is use this product to have a positive menstrual experience, right? So, so even before Westerners, the NGOs can get in there, the, 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 culture is is pitched toward menstrual products should be single use that's what makes you modern that's what makes you you know clean that's what makes you efficient that's what makes you respectable so girls will tell ngos on the ground i want um whisper is the procter and gamble product in india it's always in the u.s it's always in uh, africa whisper it's the same product just by a different name. And doesn't that tell you something that it's called Whisper? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want Whisper, they say. That's the product I want. And so NGOs say, well, they want Whisper. Let's get them Whisper or let's get them a comparable product or at least let's get them cloth pads that look like Whisper, right? And so it's complicated because girls are telling us that's what they want, but why do they want that, right? So we have to be really careful how need gets constructed 
and then how we respond to that constructive need. So yeah, the data is really not there, certainly not there that establishes that traditional methods, and by that I mean using cloth as a menstrual absorbent, repurposed cloth. The data isn't there that shows that that necessarily makes girls and women sick, but boy, if you if you rely, if your information source was NGOs and social businesses, you would think that cloth was, you know, causing cervical cancer, uh, RTIs, um, um, toxic shock syndrome. <laughs> I mean, it gets painted as like the scourge. And that's just not true. If cloth is properly cared for, changed as needed, washed and dried, washed and washed with soap and dried in the sun, um, and of course, this, you know, fits you properly and, you know, provides the appropriate coverage and preferably if it's cotton, also important, it's a perfectly acceptable absorbent. And in fact, the activists in the global north are saying, go cloth, right? Yeah, yeah like all, I have all cloth hats now, <laughs> right, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. The twist is that a lot of these NGOs and social businesses are um, sort of upgrading cloth by turning them into menstrual, you know, dedicated menstrual pads, you know, with wings and snaps mm -hmm. and, all, you know, made of flannel and, you know, and, and cut to size. And that can be more comfortable for menstruators. And I also kind of going back to the concept of Western versus Eastern, et cetera, yeah. I find it sort of interesting that whatever is defined as Western is fairly arbitrary too. So I think that's very interesting. And, and the irony, as you pointed out, is the West itself is actually moving towards whatever you might consider more traditional in a lot of ways mm -hmm. with the cloth. So it seems like a lot of what you're talking about, though, has to do with environmental justice as well. Mm -hmm. And kind of this idea that it doesn't really matter if Eastern countries suffer from the effects or Southern countries ever suffer from the effects of, um, you know, the damaged environment, as long as they're paying for, you know, specific product. But we want to take care of, quote unquote, our own people mm -hmm. in terms of making sure that things are clean um, for the next generation. So I was wondering about your opinion a little bit about sort of the environmental aspect of all of this and tying that in with what you were saying before. Yeah, I have been um, checked on the environmental argument by some of the folks working on the ground who say, why should we um, burden the poorest of the poor, you know, the last mile populations with, you know, sort of Western environmental consciousness? Like, um, if or, or or you know people who are living in informal settlements, right, which is a hot market for a lot of these interventions. A lot of them, a lot of the NGOs and social businesses are focusing on like slums in India and and in Kenya and so on, getting them products. So you know, like, um, is it fair to to sort of hey and by the way, make sure that you leave a small footprint? I mean, when in fact these are the communities that are leaving the smallest footprint, right? Mm -hmm. Globally speaking. You know, should maybe we should be um, harassing <laughs> high-consuming populations like you know Americans to be more conscious of um, our our footprint and our use of single-use products and styrofoam plates and coffee cups and so on. In other words, like is that really where we need to be focusing our attention? Mm -hmm. Is poor women and girls using single-use products in you know Kampala as opposed to the huge waste we're we're piling up in in the Right in my own right home. here, and yeah, right. yeah. Did you see my recycling thing? <laughs> that thing was full, and we're a family of four. Yeah. So, so I, I hear that. I hear that sort of like, why are you harping on that when this is a population that already 
produces so little waste. And this is a convenience that can make improve quality of life and kind of like take your your you know snowflake you know <laughs> environmentalism <laughs> elsewhere. And I do hear that, um, but. Or, and I shouldn't say but, it's an and. It's not but, it's and. And I do think we have to keep our eye on it, though, because what we hear from, for instance, um, pad distribution schemes in um, refugee settlements, um, that they're clogging the pit latrines, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what we hear from, you know, communities in, in, in like, rural Kenya, where I spent a small amount of time doing field work, is that, indeed, you know, people are burying pads and the dogs are digging them up and walking around town with them. Right, and then their mouth, and that's creating shame for menstruators, right? Sort of, it's building more into the shame infrastructure, if you will. Another way to be ashamed of your menstruation, right? Is now your menstruation's on display after the fact, right? So I think we're not thinking constellationally enough when we introduce these interventions. And a lot of that is because we're so panicked about menstrual blood, you know, oh my God, it's such a horrible nuisance in our lives. And again, menstrual stigma, right? Which, which creates a barrier, barrier to not only authentic engagement with the body, but, you know, evidence-based information. So we don't have good data. We rely on assumption. Um, and I really don't think those are the bases on which to build, you know, social change initiatives. What do you think is the solution to um, this menstrual stigma? Yeah. Oof. Um, well, I think it's a slow-moving, <laughs> it's a slow-moving solution that it's, has to um, involve strategic, interesting, compelling education um, that what I call is 360. So a lot of the initiatives focus on girls, getting girls information in schools, right? Um, so doing menstrual health education programs in schools. They often neglect boys, parents, religious leaders, teachers, government officials, everybody around girls that impact their lives. So if we Give a girl information, even if it's really good information, even if it's just like a, t- it's like a state-of-the-art educational camp, you know, initiative where she really gets good information, she has an opportunity to interact with it and, and make her own meaning, like really state-of-the-art. But if she's the only one with that information, what happens when she goes home and mom says, no, no, menstrual blood is impure, right? Or she stains her skirt next week and the boys all taunt her and tease her, Right. Or she asks to go to the bathroom and the teacher says, no, you must wait because the teacher hasn't been trained that, you know what, girls, when they express a need to go to the toilet, perhaps you should let them go because it might indicate that she's caring for her menstruating body, right? So um, it doesn't mean she's a lazy student or she's trying to get out. You know what I mean? So so if you don't educate everybody around the girl, then you're really not empowering her. You're actually, in a sense, burdening her, I think, because now what does she do with this information she can't act on? And that is constantly being challenged by people in her community, particularly when a lot of menstrual information comes out of a religious ideology. And so, you know, blood is impure um, to interact with a menstruating person can put your family's health at risk. It can, you know, um, be an insult to God. You can't you can't um, challenge that in a classroom session. <laughs> Not only will it be ineffective, it actually could be really distressing to her because now who does she believe? Her God <laughs> or the nice lady that came, the nice white lady that came from the NGO, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think to answer your question, we need good menstrual health education, but we need it for a lot of people and we need it over time because the, in the American standard is the same, which is come in one day, you know, one day and show the video and, you know, maybe do a little product you know, show and tell, and then never again, but you need time. 
So how would it be implemented, do you think, in like an American high school to mm-hmm. have like proper menstrual education that would get rid of the stigma? First of all, it can't be corporate. Okay. And most of menstrual health education in the U.S. is um, brought to you by Johnson & Johnson or Procter & Gamble, who provide the curriculum, provide the video resources, and provide um, products for um, exposing the menstruators. Um, that's just, it has to be independent because the, 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 the punchline can't be use this product for better living. And I've seen the Procter & Gamble curriculum, by the way, which I think the curriculum itself is fine, but it's literally threaded through with product placement. Not only menstrual products, but deodorant and other things, right? So it has to be independent, number one. Um, it has to be taught by somebody that um, has faced their own menstrual subjectivity, if you will, that has already has really thought about what this means in their lives and is not trying to just get it over with because it's uncomfortable. Because I think we often task people with this teaching that are not trained and are not comfortable, and so that they then pass on that discomfort. So that's another mm-hmm. key. Uh, it has to be um, over time, so I, not a one-off, and not even just one year, like not just grade six, because your needs and your attention change over time. My daughter is in a sexuality health program through our church. They, they have the program in third grade. They have it in, I think, fifth grade, and now they have it in ninth grade, right? Because the questions change, the awareness change. The level of comfort changes. And in some ways, the ninth graders are more uncomfortable, obviously, than the third graders were, right? Um, so you have to switch it up to meet their needs at the time. So I think we need to do it multiple times. And we need to do it so that it's with boys and girls together. And we also, I think, need to do it so that boys and girls are separate. I think we need both. And in the most cases, that's not the state of the art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very, that's very interesting and a very practical solution, I think, to what's going on. And I think I agree with you that it's, it's a long-term challenge and not just, you know, one workshop, which is like you said, the norm. And so. that's hard to get funded. Right. Right. So it's not, I mean, I would rather be really sensitive to the very organizations that I'm criticizing. I understand their constraints. They have funding constraints. Mm-hmm. They have, I mean, who wants to fund something that's be like, it might work, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> give us 10 years. Right. They need to we'll show do, numbers. Right. And handing out pads, you know, you can count the number of pads. Mm-hmm. You can do a post in that pre-test and a post-test that says, I'm happy now that I have a pad, right? Which is much harder. It's much harder to assess the effectiveness of an educational intervention. We all know that. So I understand that they're doing what they can with the resources they have. Um, and people, you know, the Westerners love the product solution. They think it's really great. Like so many organizations say it's the surprising solution to an intractable, intractable problem. The surprising solution. People love that. That is social media, like gold, right? Like whoever people hold up the pad and say, here it is the solution to global poverty. The thing we never thought of before. That's brilliant. It's just not true. <laughs> Yet, maybe over time, the research will show that that actually has a major impact. But right now, we don't know. And so we're investing a lot in products, 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 and too little in education, education, education. So now to move, I guess, something I'm curious about, kind of, we've talked a lot about kind of like the macro level forces at yeah. play. Um, but I guess on a more personal level, um, and you don't have to answer this if you're not comfortable, but like even with your own daughter, who's, yeah. you know, a young teen, like yeah. how have... How have you kind of like changed the conversation around menstruation just even in your own home and going off that, like any advice you might have for um, either parents or people who want to be parents um, for how to, you know, how to address that with, um, you know, young teens? It's complicated because, again, you're not 
just with all parenting, you're never parenting in a vacuum. You know, you're always, your child's always in conversation with, you know, social media and friends and teachers and, you know, people on the street. And so, so I can say I can normalize menstruation and make it just a fact of life and all I want, but the, but she's still going to encounter the rest of the world, which is saying that's something that's gross and you need to keep it quiet. Nobody wants to hear about your period, right? And nobody wants to see any evidence of your period. So like sex, I've tried to talk about menstruation. Just, I guess I, there's never been a talk, right? There's never been a talk. There's just, it's talking over time. Um, my Both of my daughters have always saw me change my pads. They saw my pads hanging up to dry, well, actually, I dry them in the dryer. Um, they've also seen me use tampons and single-use products while on vacation, so they know that I do what I, I do a lot of different things. Um, so there's a sort of normalization of menstrual of menstruation in our family life, as there is a normalization of sex and sexuality and gender identity. I'm not saying that it's perfect. I make a lot of mistakes all the time, every day, but it's a topic like what to eat for dinner, or you know, where to go on vacation, or it's your turn to take out the trash. So I think that it being a part of everyday life is important so that it doesn't get this sort of special status. You can't push too hard and you can't assume that just because you're a progressive household that everything's going to be okay because they still mm-hmm. have to go to school the next day, right? Mm-hmm. My advice is to try to make it, normalize it as much as possible, but also understand what you're up against and don't be naive about that because I think you could actually expose your kid to more harassment if sort of tone deaf to the realities of their lives. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. We, I think we're, are we done with questions? Do you have any additional? I don't know. I love this topic so much. I, I, I thought your solution. Like a really long time. Uh, um, I thought the solutions you proposed were really great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Weak on solution. Well, I think that's a weakness of public health in general is mm-hmm. we're all hand ringers and I notice everything that's wrong. Ultimately it's like, there has to be a way forward. And I think you suggested something very useful that people can hopefully infl- implement at some point. I mean, maybe not today or tomorrow, but somewhere down the line and, who knows, maybe you'll even start something that'll get this going. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, for me, it's very simple. It's like all this energy is on product, product, product. I mean, really, it's product mania. It's it's just, it's tremendous. We could just even just efface that a little bit, just shift a little bit of mm-hmm. that over here to more education. Because what often happens is a lot of these NGOs and social businesses, they do pair product distribution with education, but it's really time limited. It often ends up being kind of product 101, like how to use this safely and and that's because they have they have one opportunity to be in that one school you know only grade six only the girls that's what they can do that's what the headmaster agrees to or the minister of education or whatever so it's tough when you've got limited time so I want to temper that with realism which is funders donors have to wake up to the complexity right and you know government officials have to wake up to the complexity and they need to be able to approve you know longer range programs that are education focused because it's much easier to show up with a big bag of pads you know sure yeah and it might even be good to let communities of color do their own educating in a way um, rather than exporting it from the west totally I think that that's something that they would do on their own so like it's also a little bit interesting how imperialism plays into all of this because one of the big criticisms of India, for example, is where they're at currently with some LGBTQ issues. Mm-hmm. But I mean, before colonialism, certain genders have been have been right, normalized yeah, for a long time. Although it's complicated. But yeah, yeah, it's complicated, <laughs> um, and it's something that not a lot of people know about or 
they maybe assume that traditional Indian values are anti-queer, for example, when I've discovered the opposite and that a lot of these views kind of were adopted as a legacy of colonialism. So it's like using imperialism to fix imperialism doesn't really make all that much sense That's to right. me. And so I think what you're saying is pretty great. And I think that it also helps with sort of the cultural um, sensitivity to have maybe these NGOs focusing domestically mm-hmm. on reducing stigma since it is present in the U.S. It's present everywhere. And I, I don't know if there's a community you could list that's really pro-menstruation anywhere in the world. <laughs> uh, maybe there no. is one. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, let me think of yeah. one. No. <laughs> I, I mean, I know. I mean, even where there are like moments, there are like Southern Indian communities that, that um, have first menstruation rituals you know mm-hmm. or, or functions um but but then it's sort of like okay we yay we've celebrated you now you're a woman welcome to the community we revere we celebrate and then business as usual you know the next time she has mm-hmm. a period is like Shh, be quiet or like there's a i think it's an apache ritual um and i'm not going to remember the name of it but where again girls men's, men's newly menstruating girls are celebrated in their community and really embrace like it's a multi-day ritual but then back to menstrual stigma as, as, you know, normative. So, so it's like we have this moment and then we lose it again. Um, and in a lot of ways, um, and I'm not a scholar of the ritual, so I have been limited, I can say, but my, I sniff out, it's an essentializing reverence for fertility, really. Is You're now a woman and now you're procreative. And so, of course, that's what's celebrated, not the fact that she's menstruating. And to rally just, to men, ultimately. Yes, right. Yes. And it's normative in that way, too. So so it's, if, it, if it were really about menstruation, then that, that attitude would persist over time. But it's not. It's about fertility and womanhood and procreation. Mm-hmm. So, so in a way, it shouldn't surprise me. But at least there's this visibilizing, if you will. That's such an academic word. It's annoying. But um, <laughs> it's making transparent the fact of menstruation, right? And right. Without, without it being a shamed reality, right? Which is very different than my initiation which was oh you got your period we keep the pads in the in the linen closet that was it right that was it so that's not productive so I really appreciate your point about you know using imperialism to fix imperialism (laughs) not the way forward and more indigenous solutions right where it's not the western ngo that rolls in and says this is what we're going to do but it's local girls and women who are creating and boys and men that are creating educational approaches that make sense locally that address religious ideology in a way that's respectful and just one other thing i noticed about (laughs) ads in america at least or i don't know how ubiquitous this is it's probably everywhere but just the blue liquid that shows mm-hmm. up in so why why are we so against we're, we're right. so okay with blood and violence yeah. when it comes to movies Absolutely. we're really against blood when it comes to right any <laughs> right which is just endlessly maddening and another yeah. example of how we are in no business we meaning westerners and no business to export sort of Men's, how to do menstruation to the global south and we haven't figured it out locally right no. we haven't figured it out we're still using blue liquid and referring to it the period as ant flow right and, <laughs> right and only menstrual discourse is really pms jokes and you know True. plot lines and sitcoms where men are uncomfortable buying menstrual products in the grocery store right <laughs> so and then we're like we're going to tell you the rest of you folks how to how to enact with your menstruating body how to care for your body how to talk about it you know what's true what's not like i feel like you know again think global act local like okay let's clean up what we're doing here before we start going abroad and trying to fix the problem and react with 
horror with girls are using racks. What? Mm -hmm. Um, It just feels to me like another example of um, Western arrogance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm happy to see. And for any of our listeners who are interested in this topic, I like the blog um, My Three Speaks by Sinu Joseph. Mm -hmm. She's an activist based in southern India. Uh, oh, yeah, I, I sent you her her blog recently. Um, and, yeah, she's she has done some really cool work um, in just kind of, like, pushing against that narrative. And, you know, she's working in, like, her local communities. And, and yeah, so there is likely to see some And she's, some she's a rare critical voice. Yeah. She's very frustrated by yeah. sort of the substance of the menstrual hygiene management movement. Mm-hmm. She's very clear that, and, and who use her words, India does not need a sanitary pad revolution, that traditional methods are fine. Thank you very much. And in fact, traditional means of caring for menstrual disorders, uh, menstrual pain, and so on, you know, we're losing that history. We're losing, sorry, we're losing those methods. We're losing those strategies because we're exporting, you know, this Western view of which is just clean it up and shut up about it. Take some Lidol and be done with it, right? Um, so she's very critical, and and she um, has a lot of haters, frankly, mm. um, because she's um, she's not having it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you want to talk about your book too, I'm sure our visitors will be interested um, where sure. they can find it. And if you yeah, so it's not out yet. Um, it's in the final stages. I it's a fully drafted manuscript, but it's out for the final review with a critical development studies scholar who will remain unnamed because she's anonymous to me. She or he's anonymous to me. Um, but anyway, the book is titled The Managed Body, colon, of course, because it's an academic book, um, Developing Girls and Menstrual Health in the Global South. And the word developing is supposed to be, you know, a double meaning, developing as in a girl is developing mm-hmm. her body and developing as in development. And the title is intentional because I'm very critical of the managed body frame, which listeners perhaps have picked up, that I don't think menstruation is something that needs to be managed. Um, It needs to be normalized. So the book will be out the end of 2018, I assume. It's with Palgrave Macmillan, a global publisher. It's my first time working with this publisher. Um, I'm hoping that it will speak to audiences um, that are actually doing the work. So I tried to write it as accessibly and conversationally as I could while also anchoring it in my own research and also, as I said, my investigation of the uh, data sources, scare quotes, <laughs> that uh, many of the organizations are relying on as they frame their campaigns and rationalize their interventions. Um, I, I, I'd say that I call it an invested critique. It's critical, but it's critical because I care deeply about the movement and care deeply about um, centering attention on menstruation and, and channeling resources toward it. So it's critical because I, I think that, for me, one of the scariest and boldest things I can do is be critical of the things I love. Um, and so I, I, I'm offering it as uh, an opportunity to have a conversation about how could we do better um, and what are the constraints that make it difficult for us to do better. And I think donor expectations are one and also assumptions about what makes a good body or, or another that we all share um, in various ways. And so I really want to sort of tap into, sort of problematize those so that we can produce a stronger, more durable movement. I hope I can get a signed copy when it comes out. Yeah, same. (laughs) (laughs) We're so lucky to have you. I know. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been a really fun conversation. And yeah, you're amazing. Thank you so much again. Yeah. Thanks for doing this awesome podcast. I hope you had a bajillion listeners. (laughs) 